Welcome to Chromosphere, the color theory podcast. My name is Ed Charbonneau. I am an artist whose main focus is on painting, and I am also an adjunct faculty member in the Fine Arts Department at the Minneapolis College of Art and Design. This podcast presents a series of conversations about color, color usage, and optics as they relate to theories of human color perception in the making of visual art and design. Welcome to season two of Chromosphere, the color theory podcast. Today, I would like to start season two with a correction related to the first episode of season one. The correction I have is that in the first episode, and I refer to I believe in part two, the optical color mixing as well, that a person by the name of J.C. LeBlanc was the first to identify primary colors in the printing process that he invented, his colors being cyan, magenta, and yellow. It turns out I had my source information mixed up, and he did not use those three colors. He did not identify cyan, magenta, and yellow. So he did not invent CMYK printing. He did invent a three and four color process, but he used red, blue, and yellow as his primary colors. However, I believe it is true that he was the first in the West to identify actual primary colors as being those that can mix any other colors. So I had it wrong. Blonde may have been the first to identify primary colors, and that was in 1720. Blonde was a German engraver and printer and painter, and he wrote a book in 1720 called Colorito, and I'll read the entire title here. Colorito, or The Harmony of Colors in Painting, colon, reduced to mechanical practice under easy precepts and infallible rules, together with some colored figures, in order to render the said precepts and rules intelligible not only to painters, but even to all lovers of painting. It's quite the title. Uh, You can find it online through the Smithsonian Libraries. Uh, It's a short book. It basically describes a lot of his paint mixing methods. It's written in English and in French. All the even pages are are English and all the odd pages are written in French. French, right back together. In the first couple of pages, he describes what became known as primary colors. I think, for the first time in Europe and in the West in 1720. Reading this book is interesting because he randomly replaces a lowercase f uh, letter for an s here and there. And there must be something to that. I've never seen that before. But it gets kind of confusing trying to read some of the words. But anyway, so LeBlanc writes in Colorito in chapter 1 titled of preliminaries, and then, quote, painting can represent all visible objects with three colors, yellow, red, and blue. 
for all other colors can be composed of these three, which I call primitive. Then he goes on to say, and a mixture of those three original colors makes a black and all other colors whatsoever, end quote. And then a couple of lines later, he writes, I am only speaking, well, and here he spelled speaking, F-P-E-A-K-I-N-G. So that's how it's a little, it's a little dicey reading this. Anyway, okay, back to it, Ed. This is where it gets really interesting for me. So he goes on to say, I am only speaking of material colors and of those used by painters for a mixture of all the primary impalpable colors that cannot be felt will not produce black, but the very contrary, white, as the great Sir Isaac Newton has demonstrated in his optics. Then he writes an aside, white is a concentrating or an excess of lights, black is a deep hiding or privation of lights, the private. <laughs> but both are the product of all the primary colors compounded or mixed together by impalpable colors, the other by material colors. So he's writing this in 1720, which is about 17 years after Newton published his book Optics in 1703. And so not only is this where I've seen it credited that he's the first to name colors as primary or as he calls primitive, but I think that that word, he uses a couple of different words, primitive and preliminary. So I think that that boiled down to primary as things went. And then I'm also read uh, or came across writing where he may have been the first to put together the notion of the differences between the additive and subtractive color mixing methods. And noting the differences, but that they're connected, that the one produces white, the other produces black. And that later it was shown by Thomas Young in 1802 with his theorizing what became known as trichromatic color vision, that there are three different types of cones that are sensitive to the three different types of wavelengths being blue, green, and red, or RGB, red, blue, and green, and that those are the primaries of white light, and that was later found that cyan, magenta, and yellow are the secondaries of additive light, and they are the primaries of subtractive color mixing and so that they are linked in a way that LeBlanc is hinting to in the first pages of his book. Now how I discovered this error in my research and my notations, I think I just took down my notes incorrectly as I was going along because I checked the citation that I made and it, and it was incorrect. But the way I came across this the other day was very strange. <laughs> I don't know, it was really goofy. I was researching Johannes Itten and his work at the Bauhaus. His 
contribution to the early days of the Bauhaus by creating what became known as the preliminary course. It was the course that all first-year students took, and Johannes Itten put it together. He wrote it and was the teacher of it for, I believe, three or four years. I forget exactly. Uh, three years. He taught at the Bauhaus from 1919 to 1922 when he had a falling out with Walter Gropius and left to start his own school. I went to Wikipedia to just check a date, I think, or I don't I forget why I found myself on Wikipedia looking at Johannes Itten's site. I kind of go through, it's rather short, and it says under influence, so that's the heading, influence, the influence that they cite is, I can read it, Itten's work on color is also said to be an inspiration for seasonal color analysis. Itten is said to be the first to associate color palettes with four type of people, and he had designated those types with the names of the seasons. And I'm reading that and I'm going, all right, this is the one thing that they're going to talk about? That's the only influence that they cite for Itten. And I read this right after I got done, right after I was reading this other piece by a guy named uh, Henry P. Raleigh, in 1968 writes, quote, today there is barely an art program at any level of education that does not, in greater or lesser degree, contain some remnant of the old, quote, uh, original uh, preliminary course uh, that it uh, created. Uh, going back to the quote, foundation art programs separation of courses into color, two- and three-dimensional design, architectonics, dash, all these that still remain bear the imprint of the Bauhaus, end quote. So that's a rather, so this guy in 1968 is saying that what he did had an impact on art education at all levels, meaning kindergarten, through master's programs, MFA programs. <laughs> and to go over to, to go, I mean, that's quite an influence. That's, uh, so then when I get to the influences on Wikipedia and they're just talking about, and they reference this Color, Color Me Beautiful uh, book, who wrote that? Carolyn Jackson in 1980. So that led me to this article published by David Burton, and it's called Applying Color, and I forget where it was first published. It was published in a education journal, educa art educational journal. I'll have, I'll have to find that. But anyway, David Burton starts running through how flawed it is that this Jackson person who wrote Color Me Beautiful popularized, or that's where the idea of somebody being a winter, spring, summer, or fall that's when it entered popular culture. It was a really popular book. And he's writing that, yes, indeed, the book that Itten published in 1970, The Elements of Color, that Jackson is drawing on, what does he write, uh, Itten's ideas of the contrast between temperature and contrast of saturation that she used to extrapolate her ideas. And Burton goes on to say just how, not flawed, 
but how limited, limiting it is to consider the triadic primary color combinations as red, green, and blue as Itten proposed. So here I come across another person questioning why is it that kindergartens, and he says right in this article, you know, why are kindergartens taught that red, green, and blue, or red, yellow, and blue are the primary colors, and that violet or purple, violet, orange, and green are the secondary colors, because he's going back to the idea of the RGB in additive and the CMY, uh, CMY in and subtractive creates like this total scheme. And he cites that LeBlanc, and actually Burton writes that Colorito was published in 1730, so I don't know. The Smithsonian website says 1720. But anyway, he goes back to cite LeBlanc creating this printing process and being the first to identify this red, yellow, and blue combination as a method for creating his... I think they were essentially like mesotype printing processes that he made. And that after his death, that his process was so complicated that it kind of got lost until um, like Courier and Ives, uh, Frederick Ives, evidently recreated a similar process in 1881. But that going forward from there, that in the interim, Goethe had published Zerfarbelera, where he writes about red, yellow, and blue being the primary colors. And the distinction, and this is where I think the connection goes back to Itten, is that the distinction that, that Goethe makes from other ways of thinking about color, primarily like Newton's way, because he like despised Newton. He spends a lot of time in that book talking about how Newton had everything wrong and that stressing the psychological impact of colors, that they have an emotional resonance with, within people and that colors are not just the product of light, that they're the product of the soul, the inner being of a person, that to see yellow resonates on this idea that, as Burton cites from Goethe's writing that he associated red with imagination, yellow with reason, and blue with understanding and empathy. So those kind of things, I think, really clicked with Itten because he had this kind of mystic, metaphysical thing going on with his approach to teaching and life and, and, and everything in general. He conducted his class, the primary course, like involved uh, gymnastics and uh, humming, evidently. So it and like took things to these levels of like this metaphysical existence of color within people and how they resonate. And that that really linked up with how uh, Goethe was writing about color in Zerfarbelera and not how Newton was writing in optics. And then he cites, too, that Burton cites, too, in this article, that it's likely that Otto Runge was the source of Goethe's ideas in terms of yellow, red, and blue being those primary colors, because Goethe wasn't a painter. He was a poet. And so he was thinking of them more as 
their political and psychological meanings and how they resonated within people. So that makes a lot of sense to me in terms of how these three colors have were solidified into the instruction of color theory and art on all levels from kindergarten through advanced graduate degree areas of, of education. But the question is, why did they persist once the CMYK process was, was invented in 1905, that those processes of trichromatic vision and, and stuff like that were better understood going through the 20th century? Because Itten's book, the various editions of his book were still being published into the the 70s, and they're still being published. I don't know when the latest edition was put. Well, it could be that the one that faber Byrne, I believe, he republished the elements of color in 1970. I don't know. I'll have to check that. But there's parts of that book that persist. Yeah, I don't know. Was he just publishing it as a historical document? But it was still being used as a, as a text in classroom. Like when I went to school in the 1980s, in 1989 and took my first color theory class, that book was on the table of the professor. Yeah, and even though we didn't do like a lot of humming in class, I don't know, maybe that would be, I guess after Itten left the Bauhaus, I was reading that some of his ideas kind of got thrown by the wayside because it might have been that the reason he left is because Gropius had disagreed with a lot of this real like metaphysical almost like religious approach to being with these colors and and how he was it was working with the students so i think the gymnastics and the humming portions of class got when paul clee took over i believe him and joseph albers took over the preliminary course and then albers had it after Klee left a few years later, they co-taught it for a few years, and then I think it became Albers. But I don't know if Albers was that interested in the color theory aspects of stuff while he was teaching at the Bauhaus. I read that that came later when he was at Yale in the 50s, that he really got back into uh, these color theory things that led to him writing The Interaction of Color, that book. But even there, he goes back to red yellow and blue, and this is like in the 1950s. That was published, I want to say, in 1963 to begin with. So there, I don't know, something doesn't add up still. Still on this quest. But I kind of like the idea of having a class, like the preliminary course. What if foundation art programs and art colleges brought back the humming aspect of things? You could start, I could see walking into a classroom and saying, okay, people, all right, Make sure you use the restroom and get yourself situated because once we start our hour and a half of humming, I don't want to have be interrupted. I don't want to have to stop. <laughs> so yeah, I could see, yeah, that could be a really, and then just, yeah, hum for a little while and then bust out some paints and start mixing color. <laughs> yeah, so going back to J.C. LeBlanc and his book, Colorito, I wonder if Goethe had a copy of that, if it would have been published in 1720 or 1730. And Goethe was working on his stuff in the late 1700s, early 1800s, publishing in 1810, that if he would have had a copy of this Colorado, that could be interesting. I just found online a place to order uh, Zerfarbalera, 
and I'm hoping when I get it that it has the appendices translated into English because I can't find those online. I, can, I believe the Smithsonian has a copy of A Theory of Colors by Goethe, but it doesn't have the appendices where he cites a lot of his sources. And so it would be interesting if this book, Colorito, shows up in there. Because in one sense, LeBlanc is making an argument for red, blue, and yellow as the primary colors from which all other colors can be derived in paint mixing or ink mixing or any kind of material mixing. He uses the word material because all subtractive color mixing is the mixing of materials, whereas additive mixing is the mixing of light wavelengths. But he also goes on to praise Sir Isaac Newton, which he says, as the great, and he uses that word great, Sir Isaac Newton has demonstrated in his book Optics, I bet Goethe wouldn't have liked reading that, and he might have just been like, all right, I don't know about this LeBlanc guy. Yeah, I don't know. It would be interesting to know if that was part of the of the whole thing. And going back to that that red, blue, and yellow primary, as David Burton refers to it as the triadic system, he writes, yet the triadic system is one of the weakest, least useful color systems conceptually and chromatically. How did it become the dominant view of color? Many a people assume that red, yellow, and blue as primary colors as the basic truth. Actually, the triadic system is rather a recent invention and is only one of several competing color theories. And then he goes on to describe LeBlanc, and he writes that the greens that can be mixed from blue and yellow are not that vibrant and are often rather low in chromatic intensity compared to if you were to source the actual green pigment. And the same with the violets and purples and, and oranges that can be made by mixing the primaries of red, yellow, and so they're secondaries. Whereas thinking about the primaries of light being red, green, and blue, and their secondaries as cyan, magenta, and yellow, he points out that the mixture of green and red to produce yellow is actually stimulating more cones on your retina, on the viewer's retina, than it, they would if it was just a red or green color that you were looking at. So the presence of yellow sends twice as much information to your mind as just green or, or, or red, or blue for that matter. And so same with cyan, which is a mixture of blue and yellow, and magenta, a mixture of red and, and blue, or so it's thought. I don't know. I got a podcast on that. Look, look up purple, the color that doesn't exist. But anyway, it is, yeah, and that kind of goes back to I talk in one of the other episodes too last season about school bus yellow being the most noticeable color and that's why they painted school buses that and that's why all safety colors like in the United States are that kind of yellow and and if you think about it though that yellow is is close to orange it's a, it's not like a canary yellow uh, that canary yellow has too much green in it it's it's more of a of a deeper not quite orange that to me is like 
a really interesting argument for a lot of this stuff. And then he goes on to say that like mixing cyan with red, magenta with green, and blue with this yellow, which is like school bus yellow, and the blue is it's much closer to violet. It's not violet, but it's like ultramarine blue, synthetic ultramarine blue or French ultramarine blue. It's like a really deep reddish blue that those two will make a neutral as well. So in terms of true complements, although there was a study that I cited last season by Jan Karanderich where they found that the after images of colors are not directly across from each other on the color wheel. So that's going more into saying how these ideas of what is a complement originally based and have historically been based on what we know about after images. So there's a lot going on there, but the idea that red, blue, and yellow, my obsession with why are those colors, how did they telescope through the centuries and into the present as the first colors that kids learn? And is that true? I don't know. I haven't been to kindergarten in a long time. Maybe if somebody is out there listening, you could let me know. Is that how what you're teaching in your class? And then when do people learn Roy G. Biv, the Newton spectrum, and those colors? Well, okay, so there's still work to be done. Maybe that'll wrap up this episode. Our first episode of season two was basically spent debunking the first episode of season one. Um, Or, I don't know, debunking. I don't know, I made a mistake. But it's a critical thing. I'm happy that I found this out because it... It filled in a lot of gaps for me. And mainly, I think what it is, is the mystic connection between Itten's frame of mind and his modus operandi and the way that Goethe wrote about color so poetically and so like color is an experience of the soul. It's not light wavelengths going into your eye and making a bunch of cells vibrate. It's about the soul. It's about being. And that, I think, really was the way Itten operated. And so it paves the way for how the word expression in terms of expressiveness, like an exp- I'm expressing myself using words right now in language. So all artworks could be said to s- express something. If they're communicating to an audience of some kind, it's an expressing an idea or an ideal or some kind of state that an artist wants to like share with whoever it is that they wanted to see their work. But this expressive, where all of a sudden it became in this thought of this inner being being expressed, this unnameable process of expression and the link to psychology, that I think is the key. That Iden went back to Goethe rather than to Blon or even Newton or uh, some of the characters, Thomas Young. Yeah, because he even cites Herring in, in, in the Elements of Color, and he talks about opponent process theory, which goes further to suggest this idea of a psychology between how we interpret colors. So I'm not saying any of this is wrong. I think it's all, it's all kind of correct. It's just how things got solidified into what category and how it became like dogma taught. That's what's interesting to me. So maybe I'll leave it at that, and we can come back to this topic. 
So we talked about J.C. LeBlanc, how he used the, the letter F randomly in his writing for the letter S. <laughs> Maybe it was like some kind of code. I don't know. <laughs> Makes it really hard to read his book, <laughs> especially quote from it on a podcast. We talked about this essay written by David Burton of 1984, Applying Color, and what that has to do with Color Me Beautiful book by Carol Jackson, published in 1980. And uh, what season are we? And how does that have to do with anything related to color theory? Which it definitely does, because it was an influential book that's had a big impact on a lot of stuff. And we talked about Itten, the preliminary course, a strong argument for bringing back humming into art education on all levels, kindergarten, middle school, high school, bachelor's, BFA programs, graduate programs all across the world. Humming makes me think that anything that's creating heat, if I have this right, okay, this is where (laughs) I might begin season three by debunking what I'm about to say is totally wrong. (laughs) So, okay, so humming... Bringing back humming, a strong argument for humming in class at the beginning of the day to get your mind in in the right place to mix colors and think about art, is that all objects that emit heat emit a certain portion of the electromagnetic band, electromagnetic radiation. So humans, we emit heat. What is the average person is... 98.8 degrees on that level we are emitting electromagnetic radiation such as infrared light infrared light is outside of the visible band of the spectrum but it can be detected by other devices and that's why people show up on infrared cameras in the dark going further out on the past infrared are radio wavelengths so What if we're emitting radio wavelengths? I think we are. So the question is, what song are you transmitting? And maybe we could figure that out with doing a little humming every day for several hours. Anyway, all right, I'm done. Uh, Thank you for listening, and thank you for tuning in to Season 2. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please share it with your friends and family who may be interested and follow Chromosphere, the color theory podcast on Facebook and Instagram. We'd love to hear from you if you have comments or suggestions. I'd like to thank Jeremy Shapinsky for writing and performing the theme music. Thank you also to Grant Winkles, Susie Manili, and Jeremy Shapinsky again for their production consulting and editing.